following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, we're going to be looking again this morning at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And let's begin by reading... Um, those first four verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Um, We're uh, doing a series, actually the first two chapters of Hebrews, We'll be kind of walking through this idea that God has spoken in his son. Uh, uh, Jesus is the supreme and ultimate revelation of God's truth and God's character and God's being in himself. And we started off talking last week, kind of bringing up the reason why uh, solid, unchanging, objective truth is so vitally important and necessary for our lives and for the world. Um, And we talked about... Last week, part of the problem is that we live in this age of information overload. And, uh, you know, it's, it, is, it is cool that you can Google like anything. This morning, I, I'll read in a minute some quotes from Alice in Wonderland. I, I wanted Alice in Wonderland quotes. Poof, you know, you can just get, there was 160 of them. Kind of too many Alice in Wonderland quotes. Um, that's the world we live in, uh, where we are bombarded with information. But the challenge of that is that a lot of the information is conflicting, as we talked about last week, and, and um, what, it, what it's done is it's eroded the sense of authority, that there's somebody who knows what they're talking about. And it's created a world in which uh, we feel like truth is uh, uncertain, it's relative, uh, and, and there's, no, there's no outside authority that we can turn to that can tell us this is right, this is wrong, this is true, this is false. And so what's, what's done in our modern world, people have really taken the source of truth, the way we verify what's true and false, inwardly. So we, we, we decide what's true and false based on our own personal feelings and opinions about something, uh, which is fraught with all kinds of problems. Um, uh, and, and the result, I really believe, is a world that's growing increasingly more confused and chaotic. And uh, I talked about Alice in Wonderland, and she's really a good, she really illustrates this well. And I wonder if Lewis Carroll, when he wrote Alice in Wonderland, whatever, 150 years ago, if he kind of saw where the world was heading as truth, uh, as an objective, unchanging reality started to slip and slide. And, and so Alice, uh, you know, as the girl in the story, if you've seen the movie or the, read the book, um, She's having problems in her life because her mom keeps telling her what to do. Who likes it when their mom tells them what to do? Of course, none of us like that, right? And, and she was struggling with these rules in this world where things had to be a certain way. And so she said, 
she's having this conversation, I forget now with who, but she says, if I had a world of my own, everything would be nonsense. Nothing would be what it is, because everything would be what it isn't. And contrarywise, what is wouldn't be. And what wouldn't be, it would. You see? <laughs> well, that's an amazing picture of kind of where the world has gone. Because when you, when you take truth and make it subjective to our own opinions and feelings, that's exactly what happens, right? I get to decide what will be and what won't be. And what might be for you, might not, for you, might not be for me, right? And that's the world we live in where nothing's anchored. There's no, nothing's solid, right? Truth is relative and changing. Um, and as, as you know the story, she, she gets her wish. She falls through the rabbit hole into this world of nonsense. And um, it doesn't turn out to be everything that she thought it would be, Right? And she's, she's looking for direction. She's looking for where she's supposed to go. She's looking for um, something that makes sense to her in this nonsensical world. And if you've seen the movie, it's a lot of just nonsense. And at one point, she's uh, talking to the Cheshire Cat. And she asks the Cheshire Cat, Would you please, please tell me which way I ought to go from here? And the cat responds, Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. And she says, well, I don't much care where. And the cat says, well, then it doesn't matter much which way you go. And Alice says, well, so long as I get somewhere. And the cat replies, oh, you're sure to do that if only you walk long enough. Right? That's kind of the world we live in. Right? People don't know where they're going. And when you take truth out and truth becomes relative and it just gets all mushy and wishy-washy and I get to just make up my own feelings about things, um, there's no clear direction for our life. And people flounder. The result is chaos and confusion. Uh, but one of the messages, or the message of, of, of Hebrews, especially verses one through, chapter 1, 1 through 4, but the first couple of chapters, is that God has given us truth that is absolute unchanging and authoritative in the revelation of Jesus Christ recorded in Scripture. Right, so the Word of God uh, both Old and New Testament, but supremely Jesus, uh, is, is a source of truth we can anchor our, light, our life to. Um, and that Jesus is uniquely qualified to reveal, to God, re- reveal God to us uh, in a way that nothing else or no other person could. Um, so we, we talked a little bit last week that God's speech or revelation in Jesus the Son is something that God says, something that God does, and thirdly, something that God is. And we looked last week how this revelation uh, of Jesus is spoken, right? And what it meant for God to speak in his Son. Um, uh, in, in verses 2b through 4, uh, there's a, a list of seven or eight, depending how you count it, attributes or qualities about this Son that, that explain to us why He's so un- uniquely qualified, why it is that the Son can reveal God to us uh, in a way that uh, the, the, the written word, the Old Testament, no other person can. Uh, and essentially, uh, we could summarize or kind of narrow those seven things down into four categories. Uh, the Son... Um, well, let me t- so it's in terms of what he does. So in this list, there's some of the things of what he is, some of it what he does. And there's four things that the son does that are revelatory, that, that show us who he is. And those four things would be creating, 
sustaining, redeeming, and reigning. And I had hoped to cover all four. My sermon was getting to be like two hours long. I decided I better just cut it. So we're actually going to do two this week and two next week. We're going to look this week at the Son's revelation as creator and sustainer. Um, so we want to see what it exactly it is Jesus does uh, in creating and sustaining the universe that reveals. And what is it that, that we can discover? What is it that Jesus reveals through what he's creating and sustaining? Now, if you've been at CCF for a while, uh, some of the sermon may sound familiar. I actually preached on Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, not this last Christmas, but a year ago. So some of this I borrowed from that. Um, so if it sounds familiar, it's a little bit of a rerun. <laughs> But I have changed it some. But uh, there's some things in here that I think just are so relevant for our world today. So first of all, let's look at Jesus uh, as a spoken word who reveals God and what he does through creating. Uh, the, the author puts it this way in verse 2. In these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, <clears throat> And through whom also he created the world. And so we see this picture of, of Jesus as the Son uh, in two roles, as heir and as creator. Uh, heir is primarily something Jesus is. Uh, but these two things are uh, connected very closely in, the, in, these ver- in this one verse. So that the idea, ideas can't be uh, easily separated. We'll look more about what it means for him to be the heir when we talk about Jesus revealing God and who he is. Um, but, but we do want to just touch on it quickly. What does it mean for him to be the heir? Uh, <coughs> and <coughs> does distinguish heir, H-E-I-R, not heir, A-I-R, okay? He is the heir, heir we breathe. But I'm talking about heir, the one who inherits everything, right? He's the inheritor. The idea of an inheritance, as we often think of it, is somebody who inherits or gets the property and wealth of somebody that that gave it to them, usually a family member, a parent. Uh, That would be true. In this case, Jesus will inherit. He will own everything. But uh, probably the idea more here is is more the idea of um, inheriting the position of authority as God's son. Uh, So we, we think about, like, who's the heir to the throne, right? It's not just inheriting possessions, but it's inheriting the position of, of the right to rule, the right to govern the estate or the kingdom. Uh, and, and so the idea here is that uh, Jesus is the, the rightful heir, the rightful one to rule uh, uh, in, in God the Father's stead. It's a position of his authority and uh, that he's u- uniquely qualified to rule as the as the one with a claim to the throne. And the picture here really reinforces what it, mean, what it means that, he's, that God's spoken a son. Right? He's spoken his heir, his son, the one who uh, is his offspring. And of course, uh, Jesus, the God the Son, is eternal. He wasn't born, but he proceeds from the Father as his son. Uh, and because of that, he is uniquely qualified to reveal him to us. Um, and we'll talk more about that when we, when we uncover what it means for him to reveal through who he is. Uh, but he's the heir of all things. Uh, but it says also that not only is he the heir, but he's actually the creator of all things, right? He's the heir and the one who made it. A little bit backwards, I would have started with creation and gone to right uh, inheritance. 
but the author is carefully arranging these words into, into parallel structures. And he starts with the idea of heir and he ends with the heir. He says he's also the one who inherited uh, a name that is greater than the angels. So he's making these kind of parallel connections as he goes through the passage. <clears throat> but what I do want to talk about and spend some more time on is what it means for him to be the maker of all things, creator of the world. Uh, world here is literally uh, not just the earth, like the planet earth that we live on. Uh, the word that's used here is the word we get the word aeons from or ages, the eons. Uh, and normally we think of aeons as not a place, but a time, right? Eons is like eternity. Uh, and in Greek, the word can have the meanings of both um, time, like the ages, but it can also have the idea of the cosmos. And here it probably has the idea of both. That, that, that God the Son created all the universe as it extends across the vast expanse of time and as it extends across the vast ex- extents of, expanse of space. Right? So all of time, all of space, all that is the universe... He created, uh, the Son created. Um, so what does it reveal about God to us that, that he created? Well, this is kind of an awesome monumental subject, and I, I will, can, cannot begin to um, un- unpack all that's revealed in creation, that, that this God and the Son, through the Son, spoke the world into existence. But um, here's a couple thoughts. Uh, first of all, it really does reveal just the mind-boggling knowledge and power of God. If you want to make anything, uh, whether it's cookies or you know a house or whatever, a computer program, uh, you, you need these two things to create. You need some knowledge of what you're doing, and you need some power. And power doesn't necessarily mean like magic power, like you can call down power, but it, power is the ability to accomplish things. Uh, it means you have resources and power and energy and strength to, to create and make what you're hoping to set out to make. Well, uh, if it takes power and knowledge to bake cookies, <laughs> imagine what knowledge and power it takes to create and speak into existence the entire universe. Uh, uh, so just, just to kind of illustrate this a little bit, which I don't even know how to illustrate this. It's kind of so far beyond our grasp. But um, if power is the ability to do something, one may think of it as kind of the manufacturing portion of it, right? What does it take to manufacture something? Um, interestingly, I thought, well, it's fun to know. What would it take to make an iPhone? We all have a smartphone of some kind, right? What does it take to manufacture? What kind of power does it take to manufacture a phone? Uh, well, according to the... According to Google, right, you can just poof, here's some information. Uh, it takes 141 different manufacturing steps and 24 hours of labor, that is manpower, to make one iPhone. Right? 141 manufacturing steps to make the nifty little thing you carry around in your pocket. The iPad is even more impressive. If you have an iPad, it, it takes 325 sets of hands. Right? So there's, there's power, right? there's manpower. 325 different people doing something to produce and manufacture an iPad. And it takes them five straight days to make it. Right? So that's just to make a smartphone. Uh, but that's, that's the power, that's the manufacturing side of it. But if we were to talk about what, what was the knowledge behind it, what kind of knowledge do you, do you have to, to, to have to make an iPhone, um, that's a much harder question to answer. 
And really, when you, when you think about it, the smartphones we carry around in our pocket, these, these amazing computers, really have taken decades of research and development, right? Decades. Uh, and millions of man hours of some of the smartest people on the planet research of, uh, researching and developing and building this knowledge base that makes it possible to make a phone uh, that actually works, right? Uh, millions and millions of lines of computer programming and code to make it all work and operate. Um, so that's the mix of creative power and, and creative uh, knowledge, right? So creating is a big deal. So what it, what, you know, if it takes that to make a phone that you can drop and break and poof, it's done, right? What did it take for God to create the universe? Um, it's mind-boggling, right? Mind-boggling, uh, the, the universe that we live in. Uh, here's another, another way to look at this, right? Uh, a phone is a pretty complex piece of machinery, and we kind of get how difficult it is to make. But I ran across an essay about a guy who talks about making a pencil. Now, how hard could it be to make a pencil, right? Um, the guy was actually an economist named Leonard Reed, and back in the 50s, he wrote this essay about making a pencil. And his point was really to talk about uh, the free market economy. Uh, well, I'm not going to talk about the free market economy, but it's a great picture of how difficult it is to make a pencil. And his point is this. No one in this room is smart enough to make a pencil. Can you believe that? You think you're smart enough to make a pencil? Okay, listen to this, listen to this essay. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to summarize it. Right? This is what he says. And the pencil tells the story. So he says, I pencil... And the pencil says, not a single person on the face of this earth knows how to make me, including you. He says, this is, this, is, this is my story. My family tree begins with what is, in fact, a tree, a cedar of straight grain that grows in northern California and Oregon. Contemplate what it takes just to cut down that tree. Saws and trucks and ropes and other gear and chains to cut it down and to load it on logging trucks and eventually to a train to get it to a sawmill. Think of all the persons and people it took and the number of skills that went into making these logging tools, the mining of ore, the making of steel, and its refinement into saws, axes, motors, logging trucks, trains, and machines. Right? Just, just to cut down the tree. Right? Then he says, consider the millwork. The logs are cut into small pencil-length pencil slats, uh, less than one-fourth of an inch in thickness. These are kiln-dried, tinted, waxed, and kiln-dried again. How many skills went into making the huge saws and the kilns? And is applying the heat, the light, and power, the belts, motors, and to build, to build and operate the sawmill. Okay, again, a whole army of people. Right? Then these slats are sent to the pencil factory, and he says once, once it gets there... Uh, Eight grooves are put into the slat by a very complex machine, after which another machine lays lead into the grooves, <coughs> applies glue, and places another slap on, slat on top, making a lead sandwich, right? So all these machines have to be built. And again, people have to engineer and design them and produce and make them. Where does the lead come from? Well, of course, we know it's not really lead. It's graphite. Um, the graphite is mined in Sri Lanka, who knew that, right? Uh, consider the miners and those who make their many tools and all that is required to process the graphite and ship it across the ocean. Again, a whole army of people, right, to mine and produce a mill and, and, and ship the graphite. 
Then at the, at the plant, the graphite is mixed with a special clay that comes from, the, from Mississippi that has certain chemical compounds in it. It's also mixed with animal fat and other compounds, including wax from Mexico. Okay, so there again, armies of people to get all these materials at the right place at the right time. Uh, we could talk about the six coats of lacquer and all that it takes to make the lacquer and the machines to apply the lacquer, but we won't talk about that. Then there's the ferrule. You know what a ferrule is? I don't know what a ferrule is. It's the little brass thing on a pencil that holds the eraser. It's called a ferrule, <coughs> apparently. All right. It takes people to mine the zinc and copper out of the ground. It takes a whole other army of people to process it into shiny sheets of brass. Uh, then there's the eraser. The main ingredient in the eraser is not rubber, but factus, which does the erasing. It is made by mixing rapeseed oil from Indonesia with sulfur chloride. So you hold a pencil in your hand. It's a very international tool, right? Sri Lanka, Indonesia, all these places. <coughs> um, so he goes through this whole process and talks about all the, the knowledge and skills and, and, and labor involved in this army of people to put these materials together to make a pencil. So he, he ends with this statement, this, this conclusion. He says, does anyone wish to challenge my earlier assertion that no single person on the face of this earth knows how to make me a pencil. Actually, millions of human beings have had a hand in my creation. There isn't a single person in all these millions, including the president of the pencil company, who contributes more than a tiny infinitesimal bit of know-how. There is a fact still more astounding. <clears throat> the absence of a mastermind of anyone dictating or forcibly directing these countless actions which bring me into being. No trace of such a person can be found. Instead, we find, uh, and he puts this in capital letters, the invisible hand at work. And for him, I don't know if he was a Christian, but for him the invisible hand is God. Right? He says the invisible hand at work. This is the mystery to which I earlier referred. It has been said that only God can make a tree. Why do we agree with this? Isn't it because we realize that we ourselves could not make one? Indeed, we, can, we can't even really describe a tree except in the most superficial terms. He says, I pencil am a complex combination of miracles, a tree, zinc, copper, graphite, and so on. But to these miracles which manifest themselves in nature, an even more extraordinary miracle has been added the configuration of creative human energies. Millions of tiny know-hows work together naturally and spontaneously in response to human necessity and desire and in the absence of any human masterminding. Since only God can make a tree, I insist that only God could make me. Brilliant stuff, right? And we think of God speaking the universe into creation, but the reality is, Everything around us, even the stuff that we think is man-made, is God, God's work, right? It's God's work. We may work with him. But great illustration that even a pencil, right, none of us are smart enough to make. Uh, it's it's God's, God's work. And so, so here's God speaking the universe into, into, into existence, right? This amazing, multifaceted, complex uh, universe 
that we can't even begin to unravel or explore or understand. <coughs> There's a, uh, uh, a Japanese physicist, I can't pronounce his name, so I won't try, but uh, uh, he talks about what, 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 the, what the base ingredients of the universe are, right? So what are atoms made of? Well, they're made of subatomic particles. Well, what are subatomic, partic- subatomic particles made of? Well, they're made of quarks, right? Well, what's a quark made of? Well, that's the big question, right? That's the big question for physicists. What, what's the base material? And he, he theorizes, and it's not accepted by everybody, but his theory is that it's sound. That it really is, and he, he uses these words, it really is the vibration of God's voice harmonizing throughout the universe. Right? Cool stuff to think about. Uh, we don't know how God did it, but the sun uh, reveals... The, the wisdom and the power of God in creating the universe, right, that we see all around us. Um, he's a God of incredible power and infinite wisdom. Uh, he also says that not only does he create the universe, but that he sustains it. Verse 3, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Because he created everything that is, but also he upholds it. The idea is to bear it or carry it along. Uh, It also has the idea of of guiding it towards its goal or purpose. So the universe is not just a machine that runs all by itself. Uh, The deists had it wrong. And many hundred years ago, um, there were a lot of scientists who said, you know, the, the universe is just like a clock. And, you know, once it gets put together and assembled, you wind it up, and poof, it's just going to run. It doesn't need a sustainer. It doesn't need anybody uh, checking the oil or changing the oil or uh, winding the spring, right? It just can run all by itself. Um, but, but the Bible is very clear that it doesn't work that way, that the universe needs a sustainer, that it needs maintenance, that it needs energy, that it needs someone to take care of it. And, and uh, Hebrews says that it's God the Son who sustains the universe. Uh, what's interesting is that while scientists used to think the universe was a machine that could run all by itself, uh, that's changed recently. And scientists know now that the universe is not a machine that can run all by itself. Uh, it's unfortunate that uh, in, in high school and often in college it doesn't get taught this way. We're still teaching 100-year-old science. Uh, But the reality is that uh, the universe does not run by itself. And scientists have begun uh, to identify um, the laws of physics, as they know them, don't explain the operation of the universe. Um, So it goes like this. And I'm I'm not a scientist, so please forgive me if I I butcher this. (laughs) Some of you who are scientists can come correct me afterward. But I'll simplify it as best as my... Small brain can figure it out. And it goes like this, right? Uh, in the old system, the, this idea that the, the universe was a machine that was wound up, uh, like any clock or like any machine, when you wind it up, what happens as the, as the spring unwinds? Well, it runs down, right? It, it eventually loses energy. So we, <clears throat> we know that the universe is expanding. So we're in this little ball speck of dust, and we are traveling through space at an amazing speed. And uh, it doesn't feel like it to us, but we know that we are expanding, that the whole universe is expanding 
uh, from the, the Big Bang, from its, its beginning, it's all moving outward, right? And we can measure that, we can observe that, we can see that. Um, and so for, 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 for a long time, it was assumed that if it's expanding, that that rate of expansion must be slowing down. Why? Well, we know how this works, right? Um, as I get older, I'm not speeding up, right? Well, basically, a lot of thermodynamics tells me that as I get older, I run out of energy. I'm getting there, and I'm moving slower, and I'm, I'm, I'm winding down, right? And we know that that's how things work. If you like to play sports where, that involve hitting a ball, whether it's golf or baseball or cricket, right, you, uh, you have this ball that's not moving, but you get your bat or your club or your stick, and you smack it, and that ball does what? It takes off its speed because you've applied energy to it and you've motivated that ball to go on a journey. And the, the force causes that ball to overcome gravity and it flies through the air. But what happens as it flies? Does it speed up or does it slow down? Okay, you, won't pass, you won't pass chemistry and physics if you don't get this right, right? It slows down, right? Why? Because it's spending the energy. And when it gets to the end of its trajectory, it's out of energy and it falls back to the ground and it stops, right? So scientists assumed, well, the universe, it got smacked like a, basketball, like a baseball, golf ball. It's expanding, but it's got to be slowing down, right? Because that's the laws of physics. Um, however, in 1998, uh, a discovery was made that shattered all of their assumptions. And with the use of the Hubble telescope, they observed that, indeed, the universe is expanding, but it is not slowing down. In fact, as they gathered more and more data, they saw that the universe is actually speeding up. Speeding up. Well, how could it possibly be speeding up? But that's a problem for physicists and for scientists. Uh, because that's not possible. Because right? it's spending energy. It's losing energy. The only way for it to speed up is if some... Somebody is accelerating it, right? So we get into our car, and our car can actually go faster. Why? Because we can add energy, right? I can push down on that gas pedal, and man, this morning, I was accelerating because I was late. And I could accelerate my way here, right? Because um, I'm adding energy. Well, the problem with this, this wind-up clock that's all running by itself, where is this energy coming from? Right? That's a problem with science. Uh, they don't know. Right? They do not know where it's coming from, but they've labeled it and they've calculated it. Right? And they can measure how much energy it's taking to accelerate the universe. And so they get a name, they call it dark matter or dark energy. Um, they have no idea where it comes from, uh, but they can calculate the amount that's required um, by observing how fast the universe is expanding. And here's the amazing thing. This just, this just really blows me away. I don't know why I did not learn this in high school. Oh, yeah, it's because I graduated in 1979. I'm in the old era of old science. <clears throat> Here's the thing. When they calculate the matter and, and energy of the universe that they can see, that they can measure, in other words, what's observable, uh, matter, antimatter, the physical forces of gravity and, and, and uh, the magnetic field, it only accounts for 5% of the universe. 5%. 95% of the universe is invisible to the scientific world, right? In other words, it's not gravity, it's not matter, it's not antimatter, right? So what we see, what we experience, what we know of this universe is only 5% of what actually exists. So what's the other 95%? They don't know. 
right? They have no idea. But it's not matter. It's not gravity. It's not energy as we know it, right? Well, I have a theory. Uh, I think it's God, right? And here's the reality. Not only is God, not only is God the Son sustaining and energizing and pushing forward the universe, right? That's what the Bible says. He says he's sustaining, he's carrying it forward, right? Not only the 95%, but he's also sustaining the 5% that we know about. Uh, just kind of a quick side note. Uh, you know, we're taught in school that science is the absolute source of truth. That we know what's true and false because we can observe it and empirically verify it. In other words, we can see it and measure it. Uh, here's a problem. Uh, science can only verify 5% of the existing universe. 95% of it, they have no idea what it is. So if you're a scientist, you know, if you talk to uh, somebody who believes in science and they say they can't believe what doesn't exist, you know, what can't be verified by observation, they don't believe in the universe, right? Because they can't explain 95% of it. Um, so how does God do this? Well, verse 3, he says this, he upholds the universe by what? By the word of his power. By the word of his power, right? Um, you know, they may find, they may find some explanation uh, in science for this 95%, but here's the thing. It came from somewhere. The energy that expels, the, that propels the universe forward comes from somewhere. It comes from, it comes from God, right? The whole universe exists because he spoke it into existence and he's maintaining and sustaining and upholding it by the word of his power, by simply speaking it exists and it continues on and it, uh, it works, right? It works. Um, but beyond that, this idea of, of uh, him sustaining it is, is that it has a purpose. And it's not just that there's power, not just that it's blazing through space at crazy speeds, but it's going somewhere, Right? He gives wise, and, and he, he is a wise, intelligent designer who created it with a goal and a purpose. Right? If I took you out and showed you any machine, a car, a rice harvester, a machine, and, I, and, I, and, and, and you took it apart and you figured out how it worked, and you'd say, well, this wheel turns that belt, and that belt turns this, and it drives this, and this motor does this, you could explain how it works, right? But if I say to you, okay, well, what does it do? And you just scratch your head and say, well, I don't know. I don't know what it does. I just know how it turns on, right? Would you be considered a smart person? Well, I wouldn't think you're very smart, right? Uh, if you can't explain what it does, what's the point of knowing how it works? Well, what does the universe do, right? Why was it created? Science has done an amazing job telling us all how it works, how this engine and this pulley and this thing drives this. But when you ask them, what does it do? What is it for? They scratch their heads and they go, well, we don't know. Right? The Bible's clear that it was created with a purpose. It exists for a reason. Our world has the fingerprints of God all over it. In its beauty, in its design, in its balance, in its order, in its structure. Right? What does it all mean? If you go to the world, and this is one of the reasons truth is lost. If you go to the world and you say, why are we here? What, 
Where did the universe come from? Where is it going? What is their answer? It's an accident, right? The best they can do is tell you it's all just a cosmic accident. Have any of you ever been in an accident? Yeah, I've been in accidents. I used to be on a fire department and I saw lots of accidents. And here's what happens at an accident. Things get smashed and broken. Um, There is chaos and destruction and disorder. And there's something about it that's senseless and wrong. There's broken bodies and sometimes even death. And things are not put together orderly. They're, they're ripped apart and it's chaotic, right? That's an accident scene. Um, and in and, and an accident, oftentimes we want to scream out and say, why? Why did this happen to me? But we know it's a pointless question, right? Because accidents don't have purpose. In fact, they're kind of the antithesis of that. They are destroying what has purpose. When you look around the world, is the world an accident? I don't think so. I don't see a world that's full of chaos and disorder and senselessness. I see a world with design and beauty that has goal and purpose and that screams out that it's going somewhere and has some meaning. Um, Our our universe just does not look like an accident that's full of chaos and random and, and destruction. And that's because it was created with a design and a purpose. And and God the Son is carrying it along. He's directing it towards that goal and that that final purpose. So what is the purpose? What is the reason for which God created all the universe and you and I? Um, Well, if God's speech or his revelation in the Son is something God says and something God does, he's revealing his character in all that he has made. God is revealing himself in creation. His purpose is to show himself. Right? That's why he made it. Uh, Psalms 19 describes it this way. <clears throat> the heavens, or the universe, declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. Right? The created, created universe is, is speaking about God. It's giving us knowledge about him. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. For those who will pay attention, the universe is speaking God's truth to us. It's revealing something of his character and his nature, who he is. Um, More specifically, Romans 1 puts it this way. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God has created uh, and he's revealing through creation something of his eternal power and his divine nature. Um. That's why he made it, right? It's, it's got a purpose to show him and his glory and his, the wonder of who he is. Um, it shows, it says, his eternal power. Um, in, in an instant, God's spoken into being, and as we talked about, he's propelling it forward. How much power does it take to do that? The amazing thing is, science can actually measure it. You know how much power it took to do that? Here's the number. 
Um, uh, the mass of the universe, the, the, the weight of the universe, right, is 10 to the 53rd power kilograms. <laughs> 10 to the 53rd power. You know how big that is? <laughs> I have no idea. There's a lot of zeros. That's all I know. Is that a lot of zeros? Um, right, when you factor in, and that's just ordinary matter, okay, that's not the 95%, that's the 5%, right? When you factor in the, the, the rest of it, the part we can't figure out what it is, it's three times ten to the um, the fifty three times ten to the fifty fifth power. I don't even know what that means, right? To some scientists, it means something. Some mathematician, but can we really wrap our minds around it? What we know is that God is a God of infinite power, infinite power and ability. Can He help you? Right? Can Can He take care of your life and your problems? Can He sustain you? He can, right? He can. But the bigger question is, does he want to, right? Sure, God's powerful, but does God care about you? Does God want to help you? Or does he just want to crush you under that 10 to the 53rd power kilograms of stuff, right? Um, well, another thing that we see revealed in, in, in creation of his character is that he's a God who is faithful in caring for creation, you look at the world around you and you see a world that's pretty well taken care of. And that in spite of the fact that we keep trying to mess it up. Right? Man does not always do earth a favor. But God, what? He sustains it. He takes care of it. Um, it's remarkable to me. In most of Asia, um, the majority of people do not follow God, worship him, acknowledge him as creator. In fact, in some countries in Asia... That there are virtually no Christians. And yet, Asia is one of the most bountiful regions of the world. Right? There's rice, and you go everywhere, there's rice crops. There are mountains of rice. In fact, you go to these rice mills, mountains of rice. Go to the market, and, and you know, people aren't scrambling and fighting because there's only one apple left. No, there's mountains of fruit and vegetables. I didn't even know there were so many different kinds of vegetables until I came here. Like, I came to a place where there's two vegetables and two fruit. Like, you got potatoes and carrots and apples and oranges. That was it. I didn't know there was, like, there's, like, lots of this stuff, right? God's proud his blessing on this place because he cares for what he's created, right? He cares for the people of Asia. He loves them, and he's poured out blessings on them. He is faithful to care for what he has made. Jesus talks about it this way in Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Isn't life more than food and, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? When we look at a creation, we see, you know, I have yet to see a stressed out bird, right? They sit up on those little wire, 30,000 volts of electricity flying, you know, coursing under their feet, and they're chill, right? Really no big deal, right? They're, they're singing, right? Sitting on all that electricity. They're not worried. Why? Because God takes care of them. Aren't you more valuable than a bird? Absolutely, right? We don't have to worry because 
Creation tells us that God is not only powerful, but he is faithful and compassionate to care for what he has made. And finally, the most important thing of all to think about is that uh, creation reveals to us that it does have a purpose and a goal. Right? It matters where you're going. We are not like Alice, where we say, well, where are you going? And she says, well, it really, doesn't really matter. I don't know. I don't care. It does matter where you're going, right? It does matter. Your life needs purpose. Or we have this inward sense that our life needs to be headed in a direction. And the sad thing is the world we live in where we've eroded truth and we've said there, there are no absolutes and there's nothing objective, nothing standard, nothing unchanging. It's created people who don't know the purpose or meaning of life and they're floundering, Right? And there is only one source, only one place where we can find that direction and that purpose and that truth to guide us. And it is in Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, The purpose of all creation is ultimately Jesus himself. uh, To bring glory to God. That's what all creation screams out, right? It all... The heavens declare the glory of God. The purpose of everything is to praise and to lift him up. Um, and, that, and that's the reason we exist. right? It's the purpose and calling of every human being. Uh, to, to know God, to love him, to worship him, and to enjoy him forever. Um, and he's a God who, who created the universe and sustains it and is driving it with love and compassion towards a a clear designed purpose. Um, And we are a part of that purpose. Um, And it's a truth we can anchor our soul to, right? Um, We don't have to be lost and confused wondering. But here's the problem. Like Alice, at the root of it is she didn't want her mom telling her what to do, right? See, that's really the issue, Um, it's not that there's not truth, because there is truth. And God's revealed himself, and he is as real as it gets. The problem is we don't want him telling us what to do. And if there is truth that is absolute and objective and unchanging, then it's also truth that is authoritative, which means it has the right to guide and direct our life. Our life won't go in the direction it's called to if we ignore the map and the compass he's given us. If you said, this is the destination, we've said, well, I don't like that destination. I don't think it's true. I'm going to invent my own destination. Well, it doesn't work, right? Uh, Those things come as a package deal. The truth and purpose and direction of the universe and its rule to govern our life. We have to submit, receive, and submit, uh, surrender to both. Let's let's You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.